1: Welcome to the Ireland A History Podcast, a weekly podcast where we cover Irish history from the antiquity to the present. Now, if you were here last week, we left off with the decline of the Vikings at the end of the Second Viking Age that re-ushered in the return of the High Kings of Ireland to power on the island. If you left last week's episode very confused and wondering why the Vikings over the course of a century had been transformed from pillagers and raiders into aristocrats and noblemen, you're not alone in that. It's a very dramatic shift that happened, and it leaves you scratching your head. So the fact that you've returned this week after such a 180 from the week before, thank you. And this week, I promise, will not be as confusing. This week, we'll be discussing the high medieval age of Ireland that runs all the way from the end of the Viking Age through the first real king of Ireland all the way up until the Norman invasion of England in 1066. All right. Now that we've set the backdrop, we, are, we can dive into the history of Ireland post-Vikings. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, I would like to plug my Twitter because I'm at 18 followers and quite frankly, I need more. And if you'd like to interact with me, learn about future episodes, or even just talk about life, Twitter's the best way to follow, follow me. So please feel free to follow me at CameronJackson at History. That's my Twitter please feel free to follow it. If not, no problem. I hope to interact with you in some other sphere. I want to get closer to my community, so this is the best way I thought possible. Now that that's out of the way, back to the Emerald Isle. The Ireland that we find ourselves in at near the end of the 10th century is... a kind of a chaotic wasteland it's very disunited at this point in time there's still vikings that are roaming but they're definitely not as strong as they were a century before and largely the dream of an aristocratic norse kingdom is dead outside of these cities the vikings have very little to no influence Now, before we get into the decline of the Vikings and the rise of the high kings again, I think it's important to return to how Ireland is set up politically, because it's going to be very important, especially in the medieval age. If you recall, the Vikings had a terrible time trying to conquer Ireland, having to deal with hundreds of little kingdoms that were often warring amongst each other and making new alliances that they couldn't keep track of. Well, this is very much the same situation the new natives are finding themselves in, the natives that at least want political control. They find themselves having to deal with lots of semi-autonomous states that operate under them. And so, remember we threw out this word last time, it's gonna be used multiple times today, it's suzerain, which is where you kind of have a leader, but most of the people under them, they kind of do what they want. In fact, it's kind of one of those jobs no one really wants because they realize how difficult it is the only factions that are really warring up until the end of the Viking Age are the two separate branches of the O'Neill clan, the North and the South. But the O'Neill hegemony comes to a quick end with the downfall of the Vikings because a power vacuum in the South gets created, and this allows the rise of a new clan called the Dalgosh. The Dalgosh are based out of Munster, but they have very lofty expectations. They're led by a man named Mothgamin. Mothgmine wants to be king of Ireland, at least in the south. And the only thing standing in his way are these remaining Vikings. But unfortunately, before he can wrest power away from the Vikings, he dies in 976, leaving once again a question on who is going to control Ireland's fate. Luckily, they didn't have to wait long for an answer. When Mothgmine dies... Power is given to his brother Brian. Yeah, I don't see it either. I don't know how one brother was named Mothgamine and one was named Brian, but I digress. Brian has the same expectations that Mothgamine had. Brian also knows how to be diplomatic, and so he begins to pacify the local Vikings either through diplomacy, through arranged marriages and stuff, or just by simply conquering them and allying with local Irish leaders. Eventually, he takes over all of the South, with the exception of Dublin, and as he's moving on Dublin, he finds that he's been beaten to the chase by our old friend, Miles Seknile. This creates a very contentious situation between the O'Neills and the Dalgosh, so much so in fact that it leads to about two decades of back and forth war. But. Munster has time on their side. They're growing much faster, they're growing much stronger, and they're growing much richer than the O'Neills. And so much so, in fact, that despite the back and forth being quite even, by 997, Brian forces Miles Segnal to recognize his rule over all of the south of Ireland, including Dublin. Brian takes the opportunity to sign a peace treaty and an alliance with Miles Segnal Basically, it's partitioning the island between the two. Brian then sets about to make sure that all of the rebelling leaders under him are pacified and he has sole control over the South. This doesn't take him very long. In fact, it only takes him about three years. But you know what they say about people who get a taste for power? They can never get enough. And this is exactly what plagued Brian. Despite the alliance and despite the truce, In the year 1000, he invaded the O'Neill clan, and by 1002, he had basically subjugated all of them. Now, Brian had this winning strategy where if he attacked a place like Dublin, took it over, he always installed a local lord that he knew would be powerful and loyal to him. This way, he wouldn't have to worry when he was up campaigning in the north. And this is what he was doing most of the time. Despite the O'Neills bowing down in 1002, there were several local pugnacious lords who didn't exactly recognize him, so it took him the better part of a decade to actually subjugate the entire island. It is because of his conquering of all the rebellious warlords and his ability to centralize Ireland that Brian is known as the first king of Ireland, at least first king of a united Ireland. And he saw himself as much in fact he made his aides sign everything he wrote with imperator scotorum which means king of the irish and there's a little bit of an implication there that he also thinks that he's king over scotland because they're of a similar ethnic group but there's not real they don't recognize him and they don't actually even deal with him and so I'm sure they'd be very surprised to find out that they have a king that they've never even dealt with. He begins to see himself as a sort of reincarnated Caesar of the Britons. But Icarus would be a much more appropriate analogy for him. Because he flew way too close to the sun and he came down hard and he came down fast. But then our good friends the O'Neills, they decide you know what, we've had enough of this guy. We're tired of him. He's not even in our clan. And so they rebel against him. And so what does Brian do? He takes his armies and he begins to march north against the O'Neills. But then one of the Norse rulers that he put in charge in Dublin rises up against him. And then another lord that he put in charge of Leinster does the exact same thing. So Brian finally finds himself on the defensive instead of the offensive, But he has one thing on his side. He has a much stronger army, and he knows that he can win. He fights a series of battles, but finally he fights one big battle in which he fights the three rebelling forces that have basically teamed up against him like the Avengers. And he is killed in combat, leaving, once again, a power vacuum in Ireland. Now when I was reading this, I couldn't help but to think about Alexander the Great and how When he died, he died quite suddenly, just like Brian did. It left this weird movement within his empire in which his generals just took chunks of land and fought amongst each other but never really gained the upper hand on each other and they simply were just sitting there waiting until the next big empire came and swallowed them right back up. This is essentially Ireland in 1014. It gets broken up after his death where most of his relatives are fighting for the meager scraps of land in Munster and Leinster, but mostly the lords that rose up against him, they keep their land, while the rest is fought between his kinsmen. This is a very quick shift from where we have this one guy who is ruling all over the island to a bunch of feuding lords who can't even maintain control of one province, much less the island. I compared it to the downfall of Alexander the Great's empire but there's another one that is also quite similar and this is the warring states period between the Chen and the Zhou dynasty in China. It's a period of war between many of the different lords that had all been united originally but now they find themselves independent and wanting power. Many of Brian's kinsmen begin to call themselves king of Ireland but it doesn't have the same power that it used to. They're very weak and they can barely maintain control of their local area much less province much less the island it becomes very problematic because we have multiple kings at once calling themselves the king of ireland when they barely control any land at all and so it's left wondering is this an interregion period and yes most historians agree that for the 50 years following his death there's no real king of ireland It's just a massive conflict between different lords who all want the same thing, but they are not willing to share it with anybody. While all of this conflict is happening, there is a great movement that is happening within the religious sector of Ireland. Starting in the mainland, there's this great movement of modernization within the church. It becomes a transformation from our traditional monastic orders into one of a diocese. Now, these dioceses, these are the traditional medieval church that you can think of. The cathedrals, the abbeys, these will make up the backbone of what becomes the medieval church. No longer are there just being monks that are educated. Rather, rich nobles can send their kids to these abbeys, to these cathedrals, and they function as schools. Religious schools, yes, but they also learn maths and science and whatever the church will permit. And so this is how the church is transforming while Ireland is going through its own transformation and its own period of internal strife. While this warring states period within Ireland is going on, in England, there is very much an equally as drastic crisis going on. In January of 1066, Edward the Confessor, the childless king of England, dies doesn't have an heir. In fact, there are three potential heirs according to, well, the three potential heirs. One is the King of Norway, Harald Hadrada, One is his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson. And one is someone who's not really related but really wants the throne, and that's William the Bastard of Normandy. Up until this point, Ireland and England had shared kind of a neighborly relationship. They often had some tensions, but they never escalated to full-out war, and territory never really changed hands much. There was a lot of trade that went on between the two, but they weren't friends, but they weren't enemies either. They kind of just tolerated each other, and they realized one relied upon the other. With the rise of war in both kingdoms, the idea of them coexisting peacefully starts to dwindle, and with the uprising of an english civil war it really disappears altogether harold godwinson who like we said is the brother-in-law of the late edward the confessor is smart he moves on harold hadrata first because harold hadrata is already on the british isles and he defeats and kills him at what is known as the battle of stanford bridge now i must put a note here that This Stamford Bridge is not the same one that Chelsea Football Club play at. This Stamford Bridge is up in Yorkshire, not Fulham. In fact, Stamford Bridge is actually a fairly common medieval phrase. It's an Anglo-Saxon phrase for the place at the Sandy Ford or the bridge at the Sandy Ford. And so that's why there's a lot of instances of this phrase, Stamford Bridge. But this is more or less just a tangent that I thought was kind of interesting being a football fan and all of the football that's in the news right now, especially with Chelsea. So to recap, Harold Godwinson kills Harold Hadrata at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. During all of this, William has managed to land his armies in England and is marching north. Harold Godwinson is feeling quite up himself after all of this. I mean, he's killed the King of Norway. Surely he can beat some bastard claimant to the throne, but... The pride come before the fall. And so when they meet at the Battle of Hastings, he is resoundly defeated. He could have waited for aid from any number of lords that were loyal to him. They were just trying to build up their forces before they engaged to William. But Harold Godwinson is shot through the eye with an arrow, according to the saying, and dies at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. In fact, if you see the Bayou Tapestry today, which is Basically a really long tapestry that's propaganda of the battle of Hastings and the whole succession crisis It shows Harold Godwinson getting shot in the eye with an arrow. It's quite interesting. Actually, it's really funny and provocative propaganda Edward the Confessor died in January of 1066 and within the end of the year out of three claimants only one is alive William of Normandy quickly consolidates and begins to conquer any rebellious lords that refuses to recognize a Norman as his leader. And it takes a little bit of a while just because England can be kind of hard to traverse in 1066, and he eventually pacifies all of England by 1072, which is when he can finally proclaim himself King of England. Because William is Norman and not English, he brings with him a lot of changes to England. One of the few first changes he does is he outlaws slavery. He also brings with him his customs, his laws, his language, and it transforms English society. The Normans, they begin building a series of castles. Motten Baileys is what their the type is. And these Motten Baileys, they're supposed to defend Normans from the English who are far outnumbering them. In fact, it's estimated that there's only about 8,000 Normans on English soil when William takes over and officially proclaims himself king. So they have to really get in good with the English and eventually they do, but it does take s- a significant amount of time. If the Norman impact on England is quite interesting to you, there are several papers online that have been published in the past couple of years that really go into great detail describing all of the changes that were brought. And a lot of them are quite interesting and I think they're worth a look if you're if you're interested. So that concludes today's episode. It did go a little bit short because I really wanted to end at the Normans because next week is all going to be about the Normans. It's going to talk about the Normans and their relationship with Ireland moving forward leading up to the Norman conquest of Irish territory. In fact, I think the Norman relationship with Ireland is so important that they deserve a week all of their own, especially after the Normans conquer England under William. Moving forward, the relationship between England and Ireland is going to get a lot more contentious and a lot more full of war, rather than trading and the peaceful cultural diffusion that have been going on for centuries. As for the podcast itself, we're really starting to get into the meat and potatoes of what makes modern Irish history. The episodes are going to be covering shorter and shorter time frames moving forward. Today's episode only covered about one century, and next week we'll cover about a century as well. But don't be surprised that by the time we get to the mid-1800s, we have an episode that only covers one single singular year, especially when we're talking about the Fenians and the Irish potato famine. They're so full of knowledge, and they're so full of uh, content and understanding of what makes modern Ireland They definitely deserve a single episode over just a simple few events that are going on at the time. If the audio sounded different today, I'm putting a disclaimer. It's because I actually moved last week and I haven't fully set up yet. I haven't got my setup yet. I don't know what room I want to be in yet. I'm still trying to decide. And so it might sound a little bit different next week. It might sound different the week after. I don't know the plans going forward. We're kind of playing around with some stuff, so please bear with me, and if the audio is too bad, please don't hesitate to contact me, because I'll happily re-record an episode and submit it if it's got better audio quality. Uh, To the newcomers who are just tuning in for the first time, welcome. Feel free to check out the earlier episodes. I will say, I think as I get more and more comfortable in front of the mic, the episodes have gotten gradually better, and in return, you'll get better content because I'm not as nervous and I'm not stuttering as much because that's just a confidence thing I think to all the returners thank you for tuning in week after week I could not do it without you guys there are some things on the horizon with the podcast that I can't talk about at the moment but there are some big moments happening in the future and I look forward to being able to share more with you now enough with housekeeping It's on to my favorite part of the week where I tell you what I've been reading, listening to, and watching over the past week. Uh, As for reading, I actually finished Liberty's Dawn uh, that was discussing the experiences of working-class Britons during the Industrial Revolution. I've started to read the English and their people, which actually played a big part into why I wanted to talk about the Normans and to go into a little bit more detail about the Normans, especially next week. As for watching, I have... I finally watched a very Potter musical way later than I should have. And I gotta say, it was quite good. I've also, especially when I'm doing research for this episode, because there's probably about 10 or 12 hours of research that go into each episode throughout the week. I have been watching Top Chef in the background because for some reason, a bunch of chefs getting yelled at is just the catharsis I need to just pound right through the research. Now, in terms of listening, unless you've been under a rock, there's been a trend of sea shanties going around, and I happened to stumble across a German band called Santiano this week who cover sea shanties, and they're quite good. And for some reason, they have been stuck in my head all week, and so that's largely what I've been listening to, hopefully to get them out of my head. As for listening to Irish music... I haven't actually been listening to anything new, but I would like to say that on the 30th of April, the Dropkick Murphys, a noted Irish punk man from Boston, will be releasing an album, and so I'm looking forward to that. And that just about wraps everything up. Next week, we'll be talking about Normans and their interactions with the Irish, And yeah, I know today was a little bit short, but I really wanted to end it at the Norman Conquest of England so that we could have an entire week dedicated to the Normans. So I hope to see you here next week, and thank you.